Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Andrew Hunt. Andrew is a professor of history at the University of Waterloo, specializing in modern U.S. cultural and social history. Pop culture is an excellent window into the hearts and minds of a population, from understanding sentiments around a war to gauging the strength of the culture as a whole. Fortunately, Andrew is a lifelong historian who has read, written, and taught about all things U.S. culture, publishing several books that span the Korean and Cold Wars. Expect to learn if this is the most polarized the U.S. has ever been and how they can hope to mend the rift between the right and the left, how we can forge a path forward into the future by looking into the past, why the Vietnam War was such a watershed moment for U.S. culture, what Mr. Beast videos can tell us about the future of Hollywood's influence on culture, how Andrew found himself getting arrested in Utah, and much more. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Hunt. So I read that you were potentially charged and potentially arrested at the University of Utah. What's that about? And can you give me some more details around that? Oh, I sure will. Um, That happened in 1987. I was actually arrested with a group of other protesters. And um, it was, I I have to admit, it was one of a few protests um, that at which I was arrested. <laughs> it's, it wasn't the only one, but I was uh, with a group of other protesters committing civil disobedience. And um, what we were protesting is uh, I was a student at the University of Utah at the time in the spring of 1987, and we were protesting the university's uh, uh, huge investments in South Africa. And at the time, South Africa had the apartheid system, which we felt was it was an awful immoral system. Thankfully, it doesn't have that anymore. And uh, it's much better off without it, I think. But uh, we thought that the way to resist that was to have a sit-in where the administration was meeting to show our disapproval of our university's investments in South Africa. So um, we did that. And uh, I was uh, arrested and charged with a misdemeanor. Um, and uh, and it was sort of a familiar process to me. I had committed civil disobedience before. But uh, but luckily, um, cleared of the of the charges and uh, was able to kind of uh, walk away. And um, and the university eventually dropped dropped the charges. And, and thankfully, ended up divesting their their holdings from from South Africa, which was fantastic. So the demonstration actually worked. You guys had quite an effect on them to at least consider their position. In that case, it did. And I I was really happy about the outcome because I I love, it's my alma mater. I love the University of Utah and I didn't want it to be uh, invested too deeply in a regime that I thought was denying people of their basic human rights. Hmm. So the trouble the youth paid off. No, (laughs) (laughs) that's right. (laughs) Sometimes it does. (laughs) So Andrew, you've you've had your childhood pretty much steeped all in academia. Um, Mm -hmm. Your father being a a professor traveling to a bunch of different universities. What kind of impact did that have on you? Was that very formative in your decision to pursue history? It was. It had a big impact because I grew up on university campuses. Uh, I, I loved university campuses. They all, all the university campuses that I visited felt like home in one way or another. 
it's a, it's a great atmosphere. The students are there to learn. Uh, there's this kind of sense of excitement in the air. I was just a little kid in the 70s and 80s kind of looking at these classrooms with big eyes and, uh, and, and really um, thought even at that point that it would be a wonderful thing to teach at a university. And it was inspiring to have a parent, um, to have my father uh, as a university professor, because I grew up in a household full of ideas, uh, uh, amazing ideas of philosophers and economists and historians and you know, and, and, and grew up with a lot of culture, uh, great music and cinema and so forth. And I think, you know, that, that kind of life that I saw professors living where they were very intellectually engaged seemed to me to be a really, uh, the kind of life I really wanted to live myself. Mm. And I also read that your father was an economics professor, so not quite in the realm of history. However, Mm -hmm. he did publish some works around economic history. That's so right. I, I don't know That's if that right. potentially inspired you to then pursue history in the more pure sense. Mm-hmm. Um, if not, I'm very curious as to what what made you or what inspired you to choose the path of history. Yes, that's a great point, Jack, that you raise. Um, my father, uh, for many years, uh, specialized, in fact, for, throughout his whole career, specialized in the history of economic thought. So he and he wrote a couple of textbooks on the subject that were very highly regarded. And uh, and his love of ideas really rubbed off on me. I, I uh, grew up also loving ideas and loving history and trying to get a sense of the past and so forth. And I think for me, the real big impact came when I was in university and I had some amazing professors at the University of Utah, uh, one of whom was a, a, a academic who had a huge influence on me and my thinking, uh, Robert Goldberg, um, who became my um, doctoral dissertation supervisor when I went to graduate school to get a PhD. And Dr. Goldberg um, was a brilliant historian, but it wasn't just that he was well-read and and had researched a lot and written a lot. It was that in the classroom, he had this way of bringing history to life, of making it really seem exciting and resonate with students. And he showed how it was relevant to our lives. And he did this by telling these stories that, that, really touched us and and showed us, uh, revealed a lot about the human experience in the past. And I really came away from Dr. Goldberg's classes inspired, wanting to know more about history myself. And one of the things I always really loved about history is that in all my classes, I really started to learn that it is the great egalitarian discipline. That means um, to me that it's a it's like a gigantic museum that's open 24-7, free of charge for everybody. It's always there. Uh, it belongs to everybody. Uh, and it's not dominated by, you know, academics or theoreticians or, or specialists or anything. It's really something that all of us have access to in our lives. And I think that's one of the reasons why when, when I teach now, I get lots of students who who come into my classes who know a fair amount about history and who who have read different in different areas of history themselves and who have an interest in it. And it's always great too to sometimes I speak to class uh, uh, to groups of of uh, retired people, and um, that's always rewarding too because a lot of uh, people who um, are uh, 
retired or who are elderly people or who are, who are just sort of maybe in their later stages of their careers or wherever it happens to be, wherever they happen to be in life, they have an interest in history too. And it's really uh, quite rewarding to help um, uh, reignite that interest and help guide people uh, to looking at the past. And I think people really find different aspects of the past that resonate with them in meaningful ways. So that's what that's one of the things I love so much about history is it's that kind of universal discipline that uh, everybody can really dip into. And so important to realize where we came from to mm-hmm. kind of point towards where we're going. Um, you you'd mentioned your supervisor, Rob Goldberg, I believe that's his name. Yes. Um, do you feel like you're kind of paying homage to him as a teacher today? Because if that was that, f- if, if, if his teaching and his expression of, of ideas and history was so formative on you, it seems like that's almost being paid forward in a sense. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about that or taking some um, lessons from Robert or um, tips or tools or anything like that to then go, go forth and, and teach onward. I couldn't agree more. I think we are inspired at various points in our lives by, by certain people, and those people really stand out in, in our lives. And a lot of times when we um, try to sort of uh, take up where they left off or to kind of uh, take that inspiration and, 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 and work with it, uh, we never forget the debt that we owe to the people that taught us about history, that taught us about the past that um, enlightened us and showed us, uh, really illuminated uh, a, a, an area of, um, of study that ended up being very rewarding for us personally. And so I know that to this day, when I teach, uh, I teach uh, in a way that is used, very, very eloquently said is a kind of homage to people like Bob Goldberg and to other professors that I had who inspired me along the way, who uh, really had this way of of taking whatever discipline they taught and really making it something vibrant and exciting and fascinating. And when you left that classroom, the first thing you wanted to do was you wanted to find out more. You wanted to head right to the library and pick up a book or Thankfully, when the internet emerged, you you wanted to, to to look it up eventually to Google it when that when the time came to do that, and and really to enlighten yourself and find out more because that history or whatever it whatever it is that you're studying the philosophy the sociology the science whatever it is that you particularly find uh, compelling and fascinating and, and resonates with you that's something that 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 you not only don't forget the great teachers who who helped you understand it but you really uh are indebted to them to such a degree that whatever you teach has some element of them in your in your delivery and in the way that you teach and the way that you try to help students to understand whatever it is that you're teaching Absolutely. Yeah. I think everyone, as you mentioned, and hopefully everyone has that one teacher who they can reflect on very fondly, who saw something in them or who pushed them or who guided them in a way that allowed them to maybe unlock a portion of themselves Mm -hmm. that they didn't know that they had, which is really, really sweet. I couldn't agree more. So this is one aspect of your maybe history or motivations in academia. But the other Mm -hmm. aspect is, and I read this online as well, uh, your family was quite involved in the Vietnam War on yes. kind of both sides. 
which I'm sure has caused rifts and issues and conflict. But also, I would love to learn more about this because I think this, this, this speaks to, to you, your family, your upbringing. Um, so I, would you like to tell me a little bit more about the protests and everything else that went on? Absolutely. Um, I was born in the later 60s. And so I missed out on a lot of the turbulence and upheaval of that decade. And yet ever since uh, I can, I, I, ever, ever since I can really remember, I've been fascinated with that period. And, and, uh, and as soon as I became a university student, I started to study that period um, in a lot of depth. And to this day, I remain deeply, deeply interested in um, the 1960s and the Vietnam War in particular, as being these watershed moments in American history. And I feel like so many roads lead to those moments and so many roads lead away from them. And uh, and my initial interest in studying that period definitely was personal. It had to do with, uh, as you mentioned, being born into a family of uh, parents who, who themselves were opposed to the Vietnam War, who marched against it and spoke out against it and protested it. And also to being um, from a divided family, from having a couple of uncles who, who served in Vietnam themselves, who um, fought in that war. And, and, um, and, you know, you kind of grow up with these memories of um, how that played out and, and the divisions that that caused in your own family. And, and you look at the kind of how the turbulence of the era really spilled over and, and influenced families like mine. And I can't deny that that, that had uh, a lot to do with why I initially started to try to understand the 1960s and to try to uh, deepen my own sense of what happened during that period. And when I say the 60s, I, I, I mean um, really a sort of long 60s of this period between sort of the mid-50s and the mid-70s that was really this remarkable period of change and transformation and um, upheaval and polarization and protest in American society and a, a period in which the United States really came out the other end of it, very a very different country than it had been going into it. And so to me, understanding that change and transformation was so important. And I started with an, an obvious sort of touchstone, a, a milestone of, of the period, and that was uh, the event, that was the Vietnam War, which to me um, seemed to be an event of, of, of utmost significance in American history. And I was drawn to that, studying that war early on. Even when I was a teenager, I, I collected books that were that were uh, oral histories of um, Vietnam veterans and, and people who served in Vietnam, personnel, military personnel who were there, who remembered their experiences. And I was really moved by reading those oral histories, um, touched especially by, by people who... Uh, had every reason to want to try to push that stuff out of their mind and forget about it, but who decided to come back and share their experiences with other people. And that was really the first generation, I think, of people who fought in a, in a really um, 
traumatic and 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 painful war who who actually came back and were able to kind of be much more open and share their memories um i know too i i had grandfathers who 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 served in the second world war uh and uh who served in the pacific theater in the second world war and for them uh, it, it was just you. You served. You did your duty. You came back. You you tried to adjust to life, but you didn't talk about it. You you just put it behind you, and so that generation of of, of veterans were much more reticent when it came to sharing their experiences. Whereas I think there was something about the protests and the changes and transformations and the counterculture and all these things in the sixties that were swirling together at the same time that created this atmosphere that made Vietnam veterans decide that they wanted to share their experiences. And so, um, so, so having come from a divided family myself, where some of the people um, were out in the streets resisting the war and others were, in Vietnam, I came to understand that that kind of division and polarization that was caused by Vietnam was common in so many families across the United States. It wasn't just mine. It was a shared uh, experience of uh, countless families and communities across the country. And there were people who served from here, from Canada as well, uh, who went and fought in the war. And there were draft evaders who spilled over from the United States who were resisting the war. So it spread even beyond America's borders, that kind of division. And um, so trying to understand that became really an important passion of mine. Uh, and when I was developing my interest in history and in fact, I, I spent a lot of time in different archives, including in, in, in some of the wonderful archives there at the L, LBJ uh, library there in, um, in, in Austin and uh, really uh, trying to deepen my understanding of this war and why it happened and the impact that it had on different families like mine. And from that, I began to study these veterans who came back from the Vietnam War and began to resist the war and marched in protests. It, it was this strange kind of blending in a way of what my uncles did in Vietnam and what my parents were doing out in the streets. And they, these veterans formed a group called Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And uh, I remember seeing a movie uh, that really had a huge impact on me when I was about 21 called Born on the Fourth of July with a wonderful performance by Tom Cruise as a disabled veteran, Ron Kovic, and being moved to tears by this portrayal and knowing that Ron Kovic was in this group, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. So after that, that studying Vietnam Veterans Against the War, VVAW for short, became really my passion. It became my project that I wanted to work on. And I, I, I went out and interviewed veterans. I, I did lots of archival work for it. And the result was uh, my dissertation, which I later published into a book uh, about VVAW. And uh, really, um, that was sort of my beginning of my uh, efforts to try to understand this, this incredible period of tumult and change and transformation. There are so many interesting things there that you had, had, had mentioned. The, the stoic grandparents who, who fought in World War II versus the more open Vietnam veterans. Yeah. Uh, this, so there's tons of things that I want to dive into. Right. But before we move on from speaking about your personal experience, mm -hmm. how illuminating was it to see two sides 
to the same event in your youth. Obviously, your parents were protesting against the war. They were very firm in, in their beliefs. And then you maybe spoke with some uncles or some other family who were very much in a different camp. That's right. How did that inform you in the way that you look at historical events and that there's generally always two sides or two perspectives to any event? That's right. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, Jack. And I think that's fundamentally important to history. I've always had the belief, and I still have the belief to this day, that um, it's a good thing to have a, a strong moral compass, a sense of right and wrong, and, and a sense of morality. But it's also very important for a historian to try to put aside whatever their um beliefs happen to be about a particular era or a part of history or what have you, and really try to be as fair-minded as possible. I obviously don't believe in objectivity. I think that we're, we're, we're sort of um, bound by the, the sources that are available to us, and, the, and, and, and we're definitely creatures of, our, of a time and place. We're shaped by the times in which we live. I don't deny all that, but I do think a historian still, despite those things, can try to be fair-minded and should try to be fair-minded in terms of really trying to understand um, in, a, in an event all the different or as many different perspectives as they possibly can. And I think this is essential because it paints a much richer picture of history. Uh, and one of the things I've always loved to do as a historian is I love to muddy the water. I really love to kind of go in and, and take these areas of history where where people think it's all settled and we know everything there is to know and to really kind of shake things up a little and see what's down there in the sediment and to fund uh, information that I think will really kind of stir things up. And part of how we do that is we look at history through a lot of different perspectives. We, we try to understand uh, just what you said, that that different people bring their diff different experiences and, and, and it's not just a matter of political beliefs or religious beliefs or what have you. Uh, you know, they, they bring these perspectives that have to do with their ethnicity or, or, their, um, or how their society might racialize them at a certain particular moment or their, their gender or whatever it happens to be. So you really get a whole lot of different perspectives. And that kind of multi-perspectival history, when I'm in my class uh, talking to my students, I talk about looking at the past through a prism. And when you turn the prism just a little bit, you see things through it that are quite different than what you saw before. And that's what we historians have to do. We have to turn that, that prism a bit. So when I was studying the Vietnam War, it was important to me not just to understand the perspectives of people who marched against it, whether it were was people like my parents or people who served in Vietnam or students or homemakers or whatever group of people they happen to be. It was also equally important to try to understand those people who thought that the Vietnam War was just and that it was the right thing to do. And, and what, what were their arguments? Why did they think that it was necessary? Why did they feel uh, upset or maybe even in certain cases threatened when there were these protests and when the counterculture grew and, you know, the rock music grew rowdier and more raucous and the, and you could sort of smell the pot in the air and all that kind of stuff and people's hair was getting getting longer. Why, why did they feel like maybe something that they loved and cherished was kind of under siege or being threatened. And, and, and those perspectives are so important because 
if you don't understand them, you're only seeing part of the picture. And you're going to come away from history with a very distorted view of things. Whereas if you really try to, to try to understand the whole tapestry, I think you come away with a much, much richer sense of the past. And, 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 and that begins with uh, being open-minded and trying to really get to the bottom of things and trying not to come into your history with a well-defined agenda. The most important thing I think is for the historian is to go into history uh, as much as you can with a blank slate. And this is where I borrow from the words of the philosopher Yoda, that we have to unlearn what we've learned and we have to try to understand things um, in a way as if we're as if we're almost like we're aliens from another planet. And we're just we've come down here to try to figure these people out and what makes them tick. So so those kinds of things really led me that just just the, the, the little things like you might have two family members who disagree. Those kinds of things really lead you in, in directions as a historian to really want to investigate these issues on a much broader scale. This is so important, especially today. Like mm-hmm. theory of mind is so hard to really do it in a genuine, authentic way. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to strawman people, no matter what their, their beliefs are. If they have one belief, and you can associate a whole bunch of other things with them. And most of the time, it's just not, not true. I was actually at a pool barbecue kind of party thing with a friend of mine who had an, another friend join who works in political polling. And I asked him, what is the most surprising or unexpected thing that you've learned on the job that he'd been there for maybe six six months or something? And he said that if you look at the two sides in in the States, the right and and, and the left, their expectation of of what the other side believes is way overblown, way overblown, excuse me. So for example, if maybe 20% believe that immigration should be wide open, uh, if you ask someone on the right, uh, they might expect that someone on the, on the left or the general um, belief on the left is maybe 80% of people believe that borders should be wide open. So the contentious issues are magnified in the other people's minds. And it's really just, it's, it's not very much aligned in the truth of things. So one thing that you mentioned earlier as well is that Vietnam vets were a lot more open about expressing what they saw, what they felt, what they believed in when they came back. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that the case? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Why? Why did why did uh, a, 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 a constituency or a group of society that in previous generations had been very reticent, very reluctant? to talk about their history. And that's one of the struggles that historians have had who have studied past wars uh, before the Vietnam War, like uh, the Second World War, and then dialing it back to the First World War, and, and in American history, at least, to the, uh, to the, 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 the um, 1898 conflict in, in, in Cuba and, and in the, the Philippines and going back to the Civil War and, and, and the other conflicts that the United States was engaged in, you you see this uh, theme running throughout much of history where where the people who were fighting in those conflicts really just wanted to put it behind them and didn't want to talk about it. And I think what makes it interesting is um, when, when you're trying to understand why Vietnam veterans were suddenly open to talking about their wartime experiences, 
you know, if, I think it's important to also understand why those earlier generations of veterans were so reluctant. And, and, and for a lot of them, there was just this, uh, there, there, there wasn't any frame of reference in which you came back and talked about it. You, you, people didn't really um, connect talking through things with going through a catharsis and, and, and a healing process. And, and, and so I think a lot of those veterans of past wars, whether it was the Civil War or the First War, world war the second world war they tended to come back and they 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 just kept it inside and tried to go on with their lives and the for a lot of them despite the fact that many of them suffered from what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder there wasn't always a name for it at, at those various points uh despite the fact that many of them would have nightmares and and have um problems related to uh the experiences that they had in combat uh, they still, uh, it was just something that, that you really didn't talk about. And the same is true. I left out the Korean war as well. Same was true for Korean war veterans. I think with Vietnam veterans, what made their experiences different is that they came back at a moment in, in, in us history where people who had up to that point been previously um, sort of marginalized or who had who had um, their voices had not been listened to or taken seriously uh, were for the first time really starting to stand up uh, uh, and and voice their uh, preferences and voice their feelings and 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 press back against um, the fact that many of them were not getting their fair share of the pie and so forth and I'm thinking of African Americans in the civil rights movement and women who, who came in and joined um, uh, the feminist movement in the late 60s and early 70s and uh, indigenous people and the list goes on and on. And Vietnam veterans began to really see themselves as uh, one of these groups that um, had been, you know, many people who served in these wars had been disproportionately working class, not all of them, but certainly there were some middle class people who served as well. But many Vietnam veterans started to understand their experiences through that framework of being mostly middle class Americans and 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 wanting their voices to be heard like other voices were being heard at the same time and 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 feeling like what they did, you shouldn't be ashamed of it and you shouldn't try to cover it up. And that, I think, was sort of part and parcel of the openness that was becoming more and more important in American society, this idea that we shouldn't just bury things, we should talk about them, we should have a dialogue about them, we should uh, uh, talk through them. And and the understanding uh, that was being contributed by psychiatrists, psychologists, and so forth who worked with veterans, that, wait a minute, you know, talking through this stuff actually helps, it, it makes a difference. And by the late 60s and early 70s, there were these so-called rap groups where veterans would sort of sit around in a circle and talk about their experiences in Vietnam. And what they found when they were done was that this was an immensely healing experience for them and, and that many of them um, really felt like they were going through a catharsis and that coming to terms with the war as they experienced it and the conflict and the pain and the suffering that they went through um, was actually a healthy thing. And, and that the, you know, you didn't have to be so stoic and put all that stuff aside. You could actually really confront it and face it head on. And, and that might even be for you, at least at this moment in history, 
uh, the best way to kind of move on with your life and try to live a good, rewarding, healthy life. So I think I think really it has to be understood that what the veterans did at the time has to be understood as being part of the, the context of America really blossoming into a much more uh, diverse and open and multicultural uh, society. So perhaps this question will go nowhere. I'm not sure. And you can tell you can let me know. Um, <laughs> but looking at the differences between the World War II veterans versus the Vietnam veterans. Yeah. What was the outcome of processing the war in those two different contexts? Because as we mentioned before, World War II veterans generally very stoic, very reserved to themselves, kind of bottle it in, don't really express it. Whereas the Vietnam veterans sought help, talked it through, a, a lot of people did at least, and they voiced their experiences, discontent, et cetera, et cetera. Do we have data or recollections on the comparison between the two different types of processing? I think that we don't really have, um, uh, to my knowledge, um, any comprehensive sort of comparative studies of the experiences of, of veterans of World War II or the Korean War, for example, versus um, those of, of the Vietnam War in terms of, uh, I think, the kind of psychiatric care they received. I think a lot of this stuff was, um, you know, you can find individual records and you can find um, uh, certain studies of, of veterans, um, particularly Vietnam veterans, uh, who who underwent um, psychiatric treatment and who who participated in in group therapy and these kinds of things? I think I, I think that stuff wasn't recorded as much um, right after World War II or right after the Korean War um, because it wasn't really as much a sort of priority of society to kind of um, figure out you know how do we help people heal from post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I think that, that that expectation became much more apparent um, during and after the Vietnam War that that, that process of healing was very important. Um, but there have certainly been, I think, oral histories and anecdotal uh, information um, and studies that um, sort of talk about the experience, the post-war experiences of World War II uh, veterans. And it wasn't that you know, none of them got psychiatric care or, or uh, and there were certainly ones that wrote very powerful memoirs. In fact, in one of my classes for years and years, I assigned uh, one of my favorite uh, books about war is uh, With the Old Breed. Um, and it's by a, a, a former Marine named Eugene Sledge. And it became part of a miniseries called The Pacific. And um, it was one of my go-to books, along with another great book by a World War II veteran who served in the Pacific, uh, William Manchester, who wrote a great, great book called Goodbye Darkness. And, uh, and, and many others, there, there was this kind of j- uh, genre of soldier memoirs. And, and we have those from the Civil War. We have some of them from World War I, but we have an even richer body of them from, from the Second World War. And one of the most poignant things I think that happens uh, as a result of this opening that I'm talking about in the 60s and 70s is a lot of World War II veterans, uh, you know, who were getting getting on, but not, you know, maybe not quite to the point where they were 
in their elderly years, but but who were you know getting on into their their fifties uh, and sixties were sort of looking at this more open willingness to talk about the past, and you started to have more of them open up too, which I think was a really important thing. And you see that in 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 a mini series like um, Band of Brothers, where they're interviewing um, these veterans, and you and you know one of the I think great contributions of historians in the later 20th century was to collect the oral histories of these World War II veterans uh, and to uh, and and Korean War veterans as well and to publish those so that we have these incredibly rich and detailed histories of the uh, uh, war in the in 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 the Pacific and, and the war uh, in, in in Africa and Europe uh, in, in the Second World War from the standpoint of Americans. And I think there was this very similar movement among Canadian historians and, and, and historians overseas. And I th- don't think that would have been possible without that greater openness that came with, with uh, that the Vietnam veterans participated in and, and took part in. And so I think that was really a rich uh, goldmine for historians to, to tap into. And I'm glad that many of them did. So important not to forget, not to forget the the experiences of soldiers who are participating on the front lines of these I wars. It's, okay. Um, one other thing that I wanted to ask you that you mentioned earlier is mm. you watched a movie that brought you to tears, Born on the Fourth of July. Yes. Whenever I think of American history, I find it inextricably connected to Hollywood. Yeah. And I believe that has a lot of reach, even globally, for promoting U.S. culture. Maybe this is dwindling a little bit as kind of the world converges on a bit of a monoculture, which we can talk on later as well. Mm-hmm. How much of a role do you believe that technology film played in the change of attitude when coming back from this war? I think it had a huge impact, uh, and, it, and it can't be overlooked at all. Um I, I, for years I have studied film. Uh, I've always been interested in popular culture because I think throughout American history, popular culture is an important barometer of, of how people are feeling and what they're thinking. The kind of popular culture like movies, radio shows, television shows, books, uh, music, and so on that people are consuming in large amounts can really tell us a lot about people at a particular moment in history. And one of the things I've always loved about studying U.S. history is that it's a great uh, sort of test case or a great sort of large-scale area of study to, to develop a deeper understanding of the contribution of popular culture. Specifically, one thing that I've always been interested in is cinema, is film. And I think that film is so important. And, and you're right, we live in this kind of day and age of, of you know, streaming and, and, and some people sort of maybe feeling that Hollywood is kind of losing some of its influence. We see this huge strike going on that's underway. And it's, it's easy to kind of think that maybe Hollywood might be waning in influence, but I think it's, it's still, it's Hollywood films are still the most viewed in the world today. It's still uh, hugely influential around the planet. And uh, Hollywood really helped 
to shape perceptions of uh, veterans um, uh, after the war. One of the most acclaimed Hollywood films that won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1946 was The Best Years of Our Lives, which showed different um, a, a group of different men returning home from the war, uh, including one veteran who had lost both of his hands and who had to use these uh, metal hooks for hands. And he, they actually used a, a real veteran who won an Academy Award for that role. Uh, who who had these had to use these these hooks to kind of hold things, and it's just an extraordinary movie. Uh, to this day, it it it's one of my favorite films of all time, and I think one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it's so emotionally honest, and you almost don't expect a, a, a you know the Hollywood movie from the classic era, the, the, all the happy endings and so forth. You don't always expect that kind of honesty. So when you you see it in a in a film from that era, it's a little bit disarming. And and that film is so poignant. It never, again, a film that never fails to. I have to have my box of Kleenex nearby when I watch uh, <laughs> the best years of our lives because it's really about how these veterans adjust to life after the war and how they try to make a life for themselves after the trauma and the horrors that they've been through that makes sense to them and. And that was one of the first films to really help people, I think, to understand veterans and their experiences. And there were many other films that depicted veterans of, of World War II coming back, resettling at home, uh, uh, trying to sort of um, find their place in the world. And, uh, and I think that was a kind of theme in, 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 in a number of Hollywood movies. Uh, and certainly it became an important theme uh, after the Vietnam War. And early on, there were these portrayals of Vietnam veterans that um, even though I think some of them were great movies like Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver from 1976, which has Robert De Niro as a, a trolled Vietnam veteran, um, there were some complaints from Vietnam veterans that Taxi Driver and certain other movies about Vietnam veterans made in the 70s portrayed the veterans as as kind of crazy and unhinged and and ready to and almost like walking time bombs who were ready to kind of go off at at any moment. But uh, luckily, Hollywood is very complex and and it it has lots of different types of movies. Uh, an, another film that really won a lot of praise for its depiction of Vietnam veterans was Coming Home, made in 1978, that had uh, John Voight in a brilliant performance as a Vietnam veteran, um, and uh, Jane Fonda uh, co-starred as a woman who is married to a troubled uh, military officer played by Bruce Dern and who who falls in love with the John Voight character. And it's, it's... um, extraordinary in its in, in humanizing Vietnam veterans, and um, and eleven years later, when Oliver Stone made Born on the Fourth of July, he also uh, broke new ground in creating a, 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 a complex um, Vietnam veteran who really goes off to war, very patriotic, but comes back disillusioned, and finally figures out uh, that uh, his purpose he feels is to, to come back and teach people about the war and, and resist it so that his sisters and brothers who are serving over there can come home and they don't have to 
fight in this nightmarish war anymore. And so he actually goes out and protests. And and you have many other films that that show the lives of, of veterans in ways that um, uh, some of which uh, I, I think uh, are more are darker or, or um, uh, maybe maybe not as realistic as others, some of which are really try to humanize the veterans. I think whatever the subject matter is, Hollywood uh, is so important. And I think Hollywood films, depending on the movie, uh, can, can help um, to add greater clarity to a particular um, aspect of history. Or they can also distort and confuse people, depending on, you know, the definitely the output of Hollywood, the quality of its films is definitely mixed. So it really depends on which movies you're talking about. Absolutely. I always think back to Forrest Gump for like the spark notes of mm-hmm. <laughs> recent U.S. history, mm-hmm. uh, which I think sure. is quite, quite uh, hilarious. Yeah, there's for so sure. many questions to ask with moving to this unified digital era where uh, Mr. Beast on YouTube might get a hundred million views on a video, and that that reaches so far beyond Hollywood. It's 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 crazy. So there's so many questions to to, yes. to ask moving forward. So true. And perhaps this is going to be a dead end again. So forgive me for all these dead end mm. questions. But oh, no, I'm enjoying <laughs> it. They're all great questions. So my question is, and I recently just learned a little bit more about kind of macroeconomics. I had no idea that the Dutch ruled the world at one point. Amsterdam was the hub of the world and everything. Mm. The U.S. is clearly the current world power. And maybe some people are questioning how long that's going to continue for. Not really the point at, at the moment. Yeah. Was, was Hollywood a major factor in making the U.S. story feel unique or different? Because I'm thinking about the exporting of denim. Everyone wants jeans. Everyone wants jean jackets around the world. Uh, muscle cars, this this kind of affinity or people feeling very romantic towards the U.S. culture. Um, yeah. how, how unique and how different is that for the U.S. story because of these global spreading kind of events like Hollywood making films and, and movies? Music. That's such a great question. I that's definitely not a dead end question. In fact, that's a question you could base a, several <laughs> courses on. I think um, I, yeah, that's a great, great question. I, Hollywood has played such a pivotal role in spreading uh, ideas, in spreading tropes, in spreading um, def- well defined kinds of characters that people kind of come to expect in movies. And um, it's the fact that Hollywood cinema has been so popular around the world. I mean, there were Hollywood movies being shipped to other parts of the world as early as the 1910s. And and they were kind of going out uh, in in the late 1910s to um, uh, being shipped to Europe and being shipped to Japan and and, uh, movie theaters uh, in Latin America and so forth, where people would watch these movies, they, they would watch Charlie Chaplin shorts and Buster Keaton comedies, and they would watch Westerns and, and, and gangster movies, and they would watch uh, horror films and so forth. And Hollywood really established so many uh, different types of uh, uh, stories that, that became so familiar to people around the world and, 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 and helped to um, spread cu- pop culture icons that are still quite powerful today. Everything from, 
you know, Mickey Mouse um, cartoons to Elvis Presley movies that were so popular overseas. And uh, movies, along with, I think, music has been really one of America's biggest uh, exports and, and remains so to this day. And those visions of, of American society, I think, really helped to solidify in people's minds that there's something unique and exceptional about the United States. They, they tend to promote a lot of myths um, in the films, um, and not all of them do. Certainly, Hollywood is so diverse in its output. But especially if you go back to the classic Hollywood era of the 30s and 40s and 50s, um, uh, and you look at certain films that were popular overseas, like Westerns and, and, and other films that, that really kind of promoted the, this idea of the, the lone American fighting against uh, forces beyond his control and, and, and the cowboy or the, or the monster the, in the horror film or, or the, um, the kind of musical where people would suddenly start breaking out in music and dancing and singing in the middle of the street. Uh, these kinds of this, these kinds of images really uh, were powerful in the minds of of countless people. I remember um, uh, talking to um, a wonderful Vietnamese man when I was in Vietnam years ago. He was a tour guide, and he was actually a prisoner of war um, after the, the, the. He was a held prisoner after the communists came to power in Vietnam in the mid seventies, uh, and he came from this interesting family. He was also from a divided family where. One of his siblings had been a communist. He had been on the pro-U.S. side of the South, the South Vietnamese. And so when the communists came to power, he was uh, uh, in prison for a while and um, in, these, in these awful conditions. But one of the things that kind of kept him going was seeing the movie Gone with the Wind when he was a little boy in a theater in, in Vietnam and being deeply moved by Scarlett O'Hara's experience. And one of the stories he tell, told that, again, you know, these stories are just so remarkable and they keep us coming back for more history, is that after he was released from prison, one of, the, one of his most important priorities was to come to the United States and to see the home of Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind. And he, he, he happened to be in the United States when they were screening in, in Atlanta, uh, gone with the wind and he went in and watched it and that brought tears to his eyes and he remembered all over again the experience of Scarlett O'Hara that got him through that painful ordeal that he went through and I think that that speaks to the power of cinema that that cinema resonates with people in a way that is so powerful and leaves such an indelible impression on them that um, we can all sort of remember one movie or another that just pulled us right in. And they aren't all from Hollywood. I, I should emphasize uh, that, you know, there's some great international, some of my favorite, favorite movies are, are, were made uh, overseas. Um, but certainly Hollywood has a disproportionate, I think, impact because of uh, the popularity of its films. And despite stumbling at various points in its history and putting out of some box office turkeys or some, some bombs here and there, I think it's still a, a, levi a world leviathan that, that uh, is still pumping out films and will continue to have an, an impact, maybe not quite as much as it used to have, but, but still pretty strong. Yeah, even in today's conflict in 
the Ukraine. I'm, I'm curious to know how many perspectives on the war are colored by even like Rocky Balboa movies where they're, they're always fighting Russians or <laughs> Russians being the, the main adversary of an American force in, in, in a film. Even myself, like I'm Canadian born, but when I think of Russia, like I, my mind goes to like these hardened people and these, yeah. these, these films, which is sure. very interesting just to see how you can be molded and shaped just by consuming content. Um, very fascinating. And this, this kind of beckons the point as well. How important is having a population that has some sense of nationalism? And nationalism is kind of a dirty word. I think a lot of people think to Germany maybe, um, or people with tiki torches. <laughs> um, but nationalism in the sense that I am born in this country. I'm proud to be a part of this country. I want to see th this country win. I'm going to do my best to put up numbers on the, on the scoreboard to keep the home team up. Because I think, and I, I wish that I had some, some data here, but I believe that there has been a decline in the perception of America's role in the global world. And I'm very curious to know what sort of knock-on effects that could have in the future. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And I do agree that um, it's been interesting to watch um, the United States government um, sort of people in government kind of struggle and grapple with what it means to be a world power. I'm particularly interested in the end of the Cold War 30 years ago because that was such a, a game changer in so many ways and really dramatically altered the international system in ways that we're still, uh, we're, we're still living in the shadow of, of, that, of that end of the Cold War. But it's also interesting how it created a whole new set of global challenges that we didn't anticipate. And, and I rem remember reading this essay several years ago by Francis Fukuyama, where he, the great, the great uh, philosopher who, who said that, it, you know, in the early 90s, he talked about the end of history. And, and now he says, well, I couldn't have been more wrong, but actually we're just into a new chapter of history. And, and that it's a fascinating chapter. And Certainly, I think as the United States moves forward in it and in, in its leaders and elected officials and pundits and pub, the general public grapple with where the country is going, should it continue to uh, play a, an important role on the world stage? Should it be kind of pulling back? You know, these the, the more involved you are with world affairs, the, the more the the more financially costly it obviously is. And, and um, you know, and, and in terms of expenditures and the military and, and, and so forth. And this has been a dilemma for Americans uh, going back to the creation of the country. This, this whole idea of is the country going to be, uh, uh, as Washington hoped, uh, is it going to be a sort of more inwardly focused uh, country that, 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 sort of stays off the world stage a bit more and focuses on its own uh, challenges internally? Or is it going to be a, a more of a world, an internationalist world power, you know, that some leaders like Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt envisioned and Harry Truman and so on? 
and this sort of tug of war uh, between um, uh, between isolationists and and or people who want a reduced role, at least if even if they're not fully isolationists and they want to pull back a bit from the world stage, versus those who want to continue to exert America's strength abroad. Um, is still evident in, in American society to this day. People are still wrestling with it and grappling with it. And you mentioned something earlier that I think is very important, and that is this sense of nationalism and, and this sense of patriotism and this, this feeling of belonging somewhere, which I think is so important uh, in, our, in shaping our identities as, as human beings, um, whether we care to admit it or not. We identify with being from a certain country, a certain place, um, and uh, and it means it means a lot to people. Still, it really defines their perception of their self in very important ways. And we can pretend that it doesn't, but it does. <laughs> so, the question is is how do we kind of make sense of that? And I think one of the things I'm grateful to history for is being able to look to the past to see how people grappled with um, their sense of uh, national identity and, and, and what patriotism means to different people. Uh, I think it, one of the most fascinating aspects of American history is studying displays of patriotism and how people uh, talked about it and wrote about it and, and, and made pageants and marches and um, uh, parades about it and, and movies and, and, and music and so forth. And, and what you find is, 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 is that the diversity of expression with regards to patriotism really reflects, I think, what a remarkably diverse country the United States is and has been for generations. And you find in those expressions of patriotism so many variations, you know, that, that people have of, of expressing their love for their country and what it is about their country that really draws them, whether it's that they feel like their country um, promotes values of democracy or whether it's because they feel like you can sort of um, make something of yourself in, in America that you can't, that maybe it's harder in other countries. Uh, whatever it happens to be, this this kind of idea that there's something exceptional about the country that that makes people's lives um, uh, uh, that that really influences people's lives in meaningful ways, I think um, is is really fascinating, and it changes over time, it evolves over time, and depending on who you're looking at, their view of patriotism is shaped oftentimes by things like their sp- spiritual beliefs and their political beliefs and so forth. And, and what you find is that turning of the prism, you find perspectives from, from all over the map that I think really illuminate um, how Americans really have wrestled with that issue for generations. Very well said. As somebody who is an engineer by education, uh, I guess by trade, mm-hmm. moving to the U.S. was kind of just always on the roadmap for me, just because of the exceptional opportunity here, the booming tech sector, et cetera, et cetera. There are opportunities in Canada, but I mean, you can't really compare it to the States. Mm -hmm. And having that sense of being able to make it in in the U.S. definitely definitely resonates with me. And then coming here and hearing people and how they express their beliefs or opinions Mm -hmm. in contrast to the opposing viewpoints and how a lot of the time I feel like people kind of like – 
roll their shoulder to it. They kind of like dot, like go with the punch, if you will. <laughs> and they don't just kind of have a good earnest conversation with, with one another. It, it goes back to what we we're talking about before with, with looking back on history from two different points of view and having that theory of mind to try to not straw man the other side, but steel man it. Like try to really put yourself in the other side's shoes and understand why they look at things. This is all leading to, I've, I've heard people discuss the U.S. and I mean, this is showing in Born Out in the, in the data as well as not really one cohesive country anymore, but really there's two sides and maybe that's dramatic, but the left and the right politically divided. Are you concerned with the trends moving forward and looking back in history, how may the U.S. find a way out of this current predicament that they're in? Are there any kind of unifying events that you can think of that come to mind that might bring the polarity back to neutral a little bit more strongly? And I, I think back because everyone thinks that this is the most polarized that the U.S. has ever been, mm-hmm. which is objectively not true because they had a civil war. <laughs> that's, right. that's about as polarized as it gets. <laughs> that, that's that's right. pretty bad, right? So I, does anything come to mind and how this mm-hmm. gap could be bridged and hopefully doesn't involve picking up muskets and doing and dueling it out on the on the meadow. <laughs> yeah, great, great point. Uh, well, uh, you know, there are times when I get very discouraged by the polarization because I uh, think that you any any healthy democratic society has to have dissent and disagreement and different points of view, and I think those are all commendable and honorable and, and laudable things. But I also think that, you know, countries uh, have to kind of have some cohesion and have some things that bring people together and have uh, certain sort of touchstones that that if not everybody can relate to, most people can kind of look to and 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 feel a sense of connection and and feel like they belong somewhere. Basically, that that's just describing a, a, a society, a, a, a collection of, of, of human beings living together, uh, whatever scale they happen to live on, whether it's in a small town, a, a, a medium, medium-sized town, a big city, a state, a, a country, a province, uh, what, what, what have you. <clears throat> and, you know, I think it's challenging because uh, it, it seems like the polarization, as, as you rightly point out, has gotten to be so extreme and has gotten to be uh, so troubling in, in so many ways that uh, you feel like there's no there's just no way of sort of bridging the chasm that, that these there are these kinds of extremes that exist out there and they're never the twain shall meet they're they're talking around each other they're talking to their to to their to their tribes the, to the people that are are have sort of bought into their tribalism and 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 I think that the one thing that gives me some reassurance is the fact that like you said is that is that polarization is is nothing new in American society you uh, can go back generations um, you know some of the, the the elections that have been held at various points. Uh, in, in American history um, have been uh, very raucous affairs that that were full of polarization uh, you know in the, in the early 19th century and in the, in the 1820s 
um, you can you can go back and find these different political candidates uh, um, writing these statements that are quite frankly shocking against each other and accusing each other of all these awful things and their followers kind of cheering them on. And it's so so that kind of polarization. And as you rightly point out, it it it, it eventually split the country in into uh, sectionally and and led to uh, a devastating war uh, that that claimed uh, hundreds of thousands of lives and that uh, uh, polarization is certainly something that that kind of has its ebbs and flows there there are certain points I think in American history we, we look back to periods like the the 30s and 40s when it's kind of seems to reach more of a nadir you don't see a, you don't see the polarization as clearly in those those periods and and 50s and so on but you know it's always there to one degree or another and but but it's also one of those themes that is easy for the for the media to kind of grab onto. And and while I think there are a lot of amazing, very responsible journalists out there whose work is really laudable, uh, sometimes I think, especially the broadcast media, tends to sort of uh, run with these sort of images of polarization. And 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 I think that there's been this debate, and it's really. Uh, re-emerged in the last 25 years about how polarized is the United States really? Is it is it as polarized as it's sometimes portrayed in the media to be? Or um, is, is the United States increasingly moving toward a, a country that is um, where people are kind of p- more peacefully coexisting, but maybe uh, the, the the media is sort of spotlighting um, the, the extremes a little more than they should and giving us sort of a false perception, if you will, of, of the extent of, of the division. And it's, it's hard to say. I, I certainly think, um, you know, when you go to a granular level and you go to, to communities in, in the United States, I, I'm, and, and this exists in Canada too, I'm, I'm always struck by um, the kind of... Um, kindness and hospitality, the willingness of people to kind of roll up their sleeves when there's a crisis and help each other, uh, you know, and there have been these these tragic events. And it's even in modern American history, I think of something like the Space Shuttle Challenger exploding in 1986, or I think of the 9-11 terror attacks or what have you, where, you know, people just came together in very poignant and meaningful ways. And it showed this kind of strong current that existed of, of a sense of community and a sense of shared values and, and those kinds of things. And, you know, that's what you hope <laughs> the country will, that's what you want to prevail. That's what you hope, because those are what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Those, those, those that's, that's what we like to see in human beings when they can put aside their differences. We don't ask them to get rid of their political views or anything like that, but put aside their differences and understand that there's, much more that brings us together uh, as human beings than there is that drives us apart. And, and I think, the, you know, that, that there's been a lot of that, but I think sometimes that stuff kind of stuff uh, doesn't make it into the, to the media as much as it should, or it's sometimes it's not always easy to report on and, or you have to look a little harder for it. So I try to, kind of be hopeful in that respect. But, uh, but I certainly know that there's no getting around the fact that, you know, the, that, that 
people of opposing political ideologies are uh, sometimes it seems like they've moved to extremes and that they're talking around each other rather than having a, a helpful dialogue. So in the history, when things have gotten rather polarized, there has only been really one solution. That's a stressful external forcing function to kind of bring everyone back together. Hopefully we don't experience anything like that. Hopefully we can figure it out. I I always like to assume the best. And when I think of the internet, like the first true like type one technology that's totally global and universal, you would hope that this would bring people together. And I think for the most part, it likely has. Mm -hmm. I mean, we wouldn't have connected today if we didn't have the internet. And that's a wonderful Mm -hmm. thing. This is a great Mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. However, you can also get the opposite sides of that, where you have social media that can silo you and figure out what you like, what you engage with, and then kind of push you into your own isolated pool where that's all you have to splash around with. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Jack. And I, and the one thing I would add to that very perceptive comment is that, um, as a historian, I, uh, am one of the things where I do find a sort of sense of inspiration, or I do find a sense of hope is in how much of the past has been digitized and put out there on the internet and made available to the public so much of it is is available for free. And and like you said, I think the internet can also be a, a especially social media, which, you know, if you kind of doom scroll and, and go through some of that awful stuff, it's it's easy to get very discouraged and easy to have this sense that, oh my gosh, people are ready to go to war with each other over all this stuff. But, you know, when you really look carefully at, at how the this information has been used to, um, I think, um, bring history to larger numbers of greater numbers of people and to, um, make it more accessible to people, um, through digitized, uh, archives, uh, through, um, uh, digitized newspapers from the past, uh, through, um, uh, YouTube itself as a gigantic repository of all kinds of, uh, music and film and, and television programs and so forth from the past. And uh, really what it has helped to do is it's helped to make the past even more accessible to large numbers of people. And, and so the internet really strikes me as one of those things that can be used either way, depending on the intentions of the user. And, and it can be really used to sort of build a sense of empathy and community and an understanding of the past and uh, unfortunately, uh, as we sometimes see, it can also, like you said, siloize people, alienate them from from each other. And and I think so. Uh, the job of the historian, it seems to me, is to let people know about what's out there for them and um, encourage them to um, to use those parts of the internet that really um, help deepen our understanding of the world around us. Yeah, I truly believe that we are in uncharted waters and the study of history, I think, is just so important to give us any kind of lifeline to move forward just because of how unique a time that we're in. I don't think people really consider how novel everything is. A phone in your pocket, access to the world's information whenever you desire, that's incredible. It really is. Um, And it it makes me wonder moving forward so many wild cards. What is generative AI going to be like for people's perceptions and understanding of what's real and what's fake on the internet. 
Um, if the rapid change of tech is too much stress on the fabric of society and this is going to result in some unpredictable results, it's very possible. But when you talk about social media and your disbelief in, well, not maybe disbelief, but questioning or um, wanting to, di to dig a little bit deeper into the polarization across the country, one thing that I recently learned, and I just did it in an episode with uh, uh, an old professor of mine, uh, Paul... I always forget how to pronounce his last name. Mm -hmm. Figueth, and I'm, I'm sure that's not the right pronunciation, but mm -hmm. I'll just leave it at that. And we discussed the 80-20 rule. Mm -hmm. And you can apply that to Twitter. And I think it's even more skewed. Most people who are on Twitter are just silent observers. They're just scrolling and looking for information. There's only a very, very select few people. I think it's only... And you, you can apply the 80-20 rule to itself. So mm -hmm. only 4% of people are, are going to produce 64% of the, of, of the tweets on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this very polarized discourse that you see on social media could be very well driven by just a very, very loud minority of people. And that can very much distort people's perceptions of what the other side believes. Uh, akin to what my friend was saying about the perceptions of someone on the left versus the right and what the other person is thinking and how that's so skewed and the caricature sense, it, it, it's, just, it's all very, very interesting. Um, and moving forward, um, I have also recently learned that the amount of, I believe that they're called high net worth individuals, mm -hmm. the, the influx of them into the United States is dwindling. And I think that the UAE and Australia are two of the most um, immigration kind of friendly states mm -hmm. for bringing in high net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if this is kind of in your domain, but I believe that is a very novel thing. And what do you believe that kind of says about either the culture of the U.S. or the states of the U.S.'s power across the world? Just any general thoughts on what comes to mind when you hear that kind of stat? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think uh, the United States um, has always kind of struggled with, uh, again, we talked a little bit earlier about this kind of struggle between a kind of more isolationist vision of the United States uh, and sort of pulling back from, from uh, the world stage a bit more versus a more interventionist or, or internationalist kind of view of things. And I think there's these kind of similar divisions are at work when it comes to um, issues of immigration in the United States and who, who do you let in and who do you, who do you, you know, keep out and do you encourage, uh, immigration? Do you encourage, and what kind of immigration do you encourage? Do you want people who are highly trained and, and, um, uh, who bring certain skills with them and who bring, uh, a wealth of knowledge and different, different, uh, uh aspects of, of training and so forth into the country, um, or uh, you know, do you do you tend to kind of open it up more for for more broadly and and include people maybe who don't have that kind of training but who simply uh, are looking to work and 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 are willing to fill certain jobs and and so forth, and um, that debate is is certainly nothing new. I mean, I mean, again, talk about. Uh, being able to go back in time and 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 see with maybe a slightly different language and uh, uh, different maybe somewhat different emphases, but but overall that kind of debate is still very much there about, and it has to do with these deeper questions that I think 
a lot of Americans grapple with about what kind of country are we going to have? What what kind of future do we want? And and you know there have been uh, people, and I try as a historian, even even as I don't always agree with with certain perspectives, I'm reminded of the words of my mentor Bob Goldberg, who told me that uh, the most important thing that a historian can do is to try to understand those points of view with which mm. they are least familiar or maybe with which they they agree with the least or or maybe they they themselves uh, don't maybe don't see eye to eye and I think that that's really important and and I think it's it's important to try to understand people's um, anxieties about about these issues and their fears and 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 why it is that they might want to um, restrict certain kinds of immigration, just as I think it's important to look, try to see things from the perspective of the immigrants themselves and why they want to come to the United States, what it is they want from the country. And I think you're going through this, this period of where, where immigration really is, uh, has returned to, uh, the center of debate. And I think at various times it kind of, like so many of these other issues, it, it kind of comes and goes in, in, the, in the national debate. It kind of subsides somewhat and people debate about it less or it, it kind of comes to the surface again. And I think it's coming to the surface again, chiefly because uh, of these uncertainties about the future that have to do with um, the nature of work. And, and like you said, uh, uh, technology, particularly the introduction of AI and, and these kinds of things that... Uh, seem to be, uh, like I think you put it perfectly, they seem to be kind of uncharted waters to, to a lot of Americans. And, uh, and I think, and, and these issues are evident here in Canada too. We, we see these same things sort of playing out in terms of these debates that really they might take on a somewhat different angle or slightly different tone at times, but really you can often see these kind of parallel debates happening in Canada about who do you let in? How many do you let in? And that kind of thing. And so I think those debates aren't going to go anywhere. But I think we as as the best the best we can do is try to enlighten ourselves about the uh, the various perspectives and but not at the same time, not forget our own moral compasses and what we feel is maybe right and wrong and not be afraid to sort of uh, offer our own thoughts. Yeah, it's very, again, it's very interesting about the dynamics of the global economy right now as well, because mm -hmm. the U.S. is strongly divesting from China. They're right. going to start to build their own things on their own soil, the CHIPS Act, all these right. things. Who right. Who is going to work in these factories? Unemployment right. is very low as well, so mm -hmm. you're going to need unskilled labor. Where does that come from? That's right. That's right. Um, and along with immigration, and this is something that I have been learning about recently as well, mm -hmm. there is global declining birth rates. Reproduction in the U.S., I believe, is hovering around 1.78. You need about 2.1 to have a stable population. Other, other countries like South Korea, uh, for every 100 Koreans, there will only be, I believe it's something like 4.3 grandchildren. So that's something like a 96% population collapse. Oh, wow. All this wow. to be saying, if you don't have people to maintain your population, you're going to need to bring people in to replace people. And if you have, I mean, when I'm old enough to retire and be in a home and whatnot, like who is going to be here to take care of me? And maybe this is very selfish, but right. no, there's, there's so many interesting dynamics moving forward, which kind of prompts me to 
ask you, and we already talked about some major issues plaguing the, the U.S., mainly polarization. Are there any other issues that you can see moving forward for the states? And is there any historical context? Do you see any trends, any lessons from the past that you could maybe apply to the future? Mm-hmm. Those are excellent questions. Um, and I, I think that uh, looking around the United States now, uh, certainly you've raised a lot of important issues that have to do with politics, polarization. Uh, I think issues that have to do with immigration are, are of vital importance. Uh, you know, there's always been um, a challenge uh, economically within the United States. I know coming from a, a household where my father was an economist, uh, that economics is uh, so important. Even if I want to spend most of my time studying pop culture, I know that uh, economics is still vital and um, and the future of the American economy, uh, what kind of economy is it going to be? Uh, how can you sort of maintain an economy that doesn't um, you know that that maybe where maybe companies are sort of scaling back their their workforces to minimum numbers needed, or when they, when they're kind of scaling things back, like like benefits, or when they're introducing AI. And I know there have been these debates in the past, in the fifties and sixties, there were these debates about automation and 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 where is automation going, and how many jobs are that is it going to get rid of. And, uh, you know, I think with all these issues and, and another, another issue that, that is very poignant that I think uh, people are grappling with now are, is the climate. Uh, obviously, the changes going on with the climate. And, and is this, you know, as somebody who grew up a, a big part of my life in the American Southwest, um, you know, the, the, uh, the fact that, you, you know, I've, I've been outside when it's over a hundred and it's, it's very unpleasant, but then again, it's part of the landscape. So you kind of, you know, I remember that as a little kid being outside in a hundred degree weather and running over to the shade as quickly as I could to get out of it. Um, uh, but you know, the fact that there's so many more days like that and, and is that what's happening here? And, and is, is this really, uh, you know, I, I remember a couple months ago reading these newspaper articles about, this awful heat wave in 1936 and trying to understand back before lots of people had air conditioning and so many people were dying from this and, uh, you know, trying to get a deeper sense of, of, uh, this, this kind of what the climate that we're living in and why is, why is these changes happening and the oceans heating up? These are really poignant issues that, you know, and I think back to when, uh, those of us who remember the cold war, lived through the Cold War, and we, we worried about things like nuclear annihilation. Are, are, are the superpowers going to go to war and, and push the buttons, and, and, and are the nuclear weapons going to rain down on us and, and end civilization as we know it? And, and scientists back in those days talked about uh, these long winters, these nuclear winters, and, and so forth. So I think these issues have always been with us. I think they're, they're, when we study history, we really understand that these, uh, these kinds of concerns about the health of the world, of the planet that we live on, the, um, the nature of the economy and how it functions, uh, the, um, the, the, the issues of immigration, uh, that these are all 
vital issues that we have to deal with. Um, but I think, you know, we, we, by, by looking at history, we understand that people were confronting these very same issues in earlier generations. And that doesn't necessarily make us complacent. We don't, oh, well, if they were dealing with it, we, we have nothing to be concerned about. But what it does help us to understand is that these are long arcs and that, and that people struggled with these issues in different ways in the past. And we can learn from the ways that they struggled from them. We can see the positive things that they did. We can see the mistakes that they made. And moving forward, we can bear those in mind as we we ourselves try to figure out a way to keep uh, you know, uh, maintain an, in these inclusive societies, the, these diverse multicultural societies, but at the same time grapple with these uncertainties in ways that will hopefully lead to um, uh, long-term solutions. And, uh, and we don't have enough time to kind of grapple with what those solutions might be, but certainly hi the history can illuminate uh, those issues for us, I think. So looking forward through the lens of a historian, Mm -hmm. What would you tell the average person as to why history, especially U.S. history, pop culture in the U.S., is so important for how to make a deliberate and progressive path forward? How do we, how do we use history to then be able to chart a map in the next few years? Excellent question. I, I think that's probably the most relevant question that I can that I can think of. And I think no matter what kind of history you're studying, whether it's economic history, um, political history, um, foreign policy and diplomacy, um, popular culture, uh, you know, uh, the history of, of um, uh, women or and gender or African Americans or whatever whatever kind of area of history one is studying, uh, I think that all those areas of history um, provide us with insights that can help us understand where we came from and collectively speaking, of course, sometimes when we're doing our own history of our ancestors, we can even understand where we ourselves directly came from. But, but when I say where we came from, I mean, collectively as a human race, uh, and, and, um, and to, to look, sort of look at the trajectories of uh, the long term might give us some clues as to where we're going in the future. And, and I think all histories have something to offer us, um, even something that may seem kind of uh, light or vacuous or something to some people like, like the history. Some, some people think pop culture history is, is something that is not maybe not quite as weighty or serious as economic history or social history. It actually is because we're studying the popular culture that ordinary people consumed and what it was that resonated with people and, and what it was that meant something to people in movies, magazines, books, uh, music, uh, and, and art and so on. And so sports and so forth. And, um, and, and that can tell us a lot about where we're at right now and, and where we're heading. And I think it's important for historians to sort of look at those long-term trajectories and get a sense of, the directions in which history seems to be moving and to add their voices. Because one of the things I mistakes that I think some historians make is they think 
you know, if it's, if it's newer than 30 years old, I can't touch it. I'm not going to go near it, you know, but I'm one of those historians who really strongly believes that, um, you know, we can't just sort of leave the recent history to the sociologists and political scientists. They're doing great work and we need to support that. But we historians also should be weighing in with the tools of history and, and the ways of understanding history. And part of that means uh, really developing a deeper understanding of recent history, even within the last few years. And I, I am one of those historians who believes that that's absolutely vital, even if we don't know the long-term impacts of that history, like we might understand the long-term impacts of other parts of history we're studying. It's still important for us to, to sort of get in on the ground floor, weigh in, offer our opinions, not be so reticent about them, and hopefully help shape the debate about where we're going with things like immigration, like climate change, like the economy, and like what's going on right now with, uh, with popular culture, especially with film, with the, these big strikes that are happening that are, have to do with AI and so forth. That is really within the realm of, of popular culture. And we have to, I think it's important for us to kind of deepen our understanding of the issues that are at stake there, because it's really impacting potentially large numbers of people. Andrew Hunt, ladies and gentlemen. Andrew, if anyone listening wants to keep up with you or your work or maybe get one of your books, where can they go? Uh, thank you for, for bringing that up. Uh, there, anyone who wants to contact me is welcome to email me at aehunt at uwaterloo.ca. Um, a lot of my books are, uh, available for order, uh, at your, at a bookstore near you. I've, I've written a variety of books, including I wrote some, um, mysteries, some fictional mysteries, um, uh, that, that I've written. And I, and I think I mentioned a lot of those on the University of Waterloo history website that you can Google if you have more questions, but um, but I know that uh, that those books can be ordered online or from your local bookstore. And I know we didn't really touch on it, but in the fall, mm -hmm. Beatlemania. If anyone, if any Beetleheads are oh, listening, <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Yes, my my book on uh, titled uh, Beetlemania in America will be coming out in uh, October. Thanks for mentioning that, Jack. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I really Me appreciate too. you and your work. Me too. It's great chatting with you, Jack. Thanks for this wonderful opportunity.